Hello. How have you been? Welcome. This is Atomic Radio Hour, the show that dives into the wreckage that is post-apocalyptia. I am your host, Vince, and I'm also here with... Your main character, Declan. And we're also here with a third person. Would you like to introduce yourself, sir? Our thing. Uh, my name is uh, Luke Minch. I'm a board game developer. Um, I've done work with people like uh, Jonathan Gilmore and Doug Lewandowski, most prominently. And uh, I was vi- invited to come on and talk with you guys, and I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, we're happy cool. to have you. Yeah, <laughs> really. Uh, I, I met Luke the maybe three weeks ago uh, at a Keyforge tournament. Um, I think you placed third or second? I was second place in that second. tournament, which was... I, I want to say it was surprising, but I feel like after 34 games of Keyforge, you start to get a handle on the game pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my way of saying I've played way too much Keyforge this year specifically. <laughs> yeah, and that was Which whether whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's up to you to find out. But I'm not stopping anytime soon. So, Nor am I. <laughs> yeah. Key, I, I, I don't. I've probably said it here before. Uh, Keyforge is the only card game that I've ever found myself being like, I need to be playing this all the time. Well, absolutely. Um, I grew up with some light magic interaction. Uh, my cousin had been playing it since like the late 80s, I believe, if I get my magic history correct. I, it might have not been released by then, and I'm just saying words. But I <laughs> for that kind of stuff. I never had the financial ability to just be like, yeah, I'll just drop a few hundred dollars on some cards that maybe yeah. I don't even want kind of. I feel that hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Like I played magic in high school, but after that, I just like didn't want to put the money into it. Well, and the aesthetic is so nice. Like they, you know, Richard Garfield has known what he's been doing for years in terms of selling this product in terms of making an engaging game. But the, the format of sale is so difficult. And also um, the frequency in which you can get it to the table I found to be very difficult uh, in comparison to something like Hearthstone, which I played for a little bit uh, in replacement of that. But now that I have Keyforge and a lot of people can just play Keyforge, like I will lend you a deck. You don't have to build anything, so you're not at too much of a disadvantage off the bat. Or if my friend just is like, yo, I'm going to go buy a $10 deck. You want to teach me? I've done that like four or five times already, and I've had people beat me their first time into it doing that just by like sort of going through the steps and really appreciating what the game does. It's just so smart. That's my favorite part about it is that yeah, there's no real game. there's no real barrier. It's mm-hmm. just I want to learn how to play this. I got $10 burning a hole in my pocket. Why not? Absolutely. Well, and I mean, that's the biggest thing that holds back, in my opinion, any uh, LCG or CCG, uh, any game that requires you extensive work in the background before you start playing often uh, has smaller player counts just because of the amount of effort that you have to take before even starting the game. Something that intimidates me about Imperial Settlers, which I have on my shelf and I've had on my shelf for at least four or five months now and I haven't touched is because once you get into the expansion content, start building your decks and you have to start questioning, okay, 
Mm-hmm. Who who is this game for at this point? I can't casually bring my friends in if I'm having them build decks about a game that they just started learning. And it's unless I have a dedicated group of people who I play this game with consistently, then I it's not a fun or fair fight in terms of the game mechanics. So I find that Keyforge has that nice balance of you don't have to do any of the ahead work if you don't want to, but being more intimately familiar with the cards in your deck will make you way more skilled at what you can do with that deck. Oh, I totally agree. I think Keyforge really hits the nail on the head for having something that's approachable for new players and having enough complexity that people that really want to get into it can really take a deep dive. Absolutely. Yeah. When, uh, when when we were in the not this tournament that I met you in a tournament or two before that, we had uh, it, we, it's always sealed the tournaments I play in. So you you buy a brand new deck, it's ten dollars. You never know what you're gonna get. And I'm going through my decks, and I open this deck up, and it is what I now refer to as my schwuppen deck because <laughs> now I understand how it works. But when I played in the tournament, I think I came in like third from last. But now I have like a win ratio with it where I'm winning probably two out of three games. Is that Secret Needle, Bad Penny? Secret Needle, Bad Penny. Ooh. Yeah, such a good combo. Ooh, I got two Secret Needles, a Bad Penny, and three Pawn Sacrifices, and I got a Maverick Witch of the Eye for Bravnar. Nobody can mm. touch me. Very that deck nice. is incredible. Uh, but, like, that's a deck that, like, when I got it, one of the guys who works there... Mr. Inside Baseball himself was like, hey, uh, this is a really great deck and I want to buy it off you. And I was like, let me play with it. And I couldn't figure it out. But after getting my head out of my ass and learning how to play it, I was like, (laughs) oh, my God, this is amazing. Sure, sure. And I mean, at the end of the day, like I I find it more fun to play with decks that are janky. And sort really? of just try and figure out how it works as opposed to getting the the most competitive deck. Because if you have the most competitive deck that just kicks butt every time... No one wants to play against it. You're not challenging yourself yeah. as a player. And like you said, no one wants to play against you. One of my favorite decks, which is the last deck that I pulled, it's called the Foiling Watcher. And it's a oh. very fitting name because it is Dis Shadows Untamed. And the entire deck is just... No, you can't have oh. that. There's uh, wow. Control of the Weak, there's Gateway to Dis, Hand of Dis, Two Poltergeists, like everything in the deck is just, I take your thing, and I destroy it, and oh yeah, you can only do two actions next turn, switch you, and uh, even if you could build uh, a key next turn, I'm going to play my Asthma, because I have two of them, to get the extra Amber, so I have like enough to build my own key. Oh, it's your turn. That's awful. I mean, you have a bunch of creatures out there, three fates. Like, it's ridiculous. At the same time, you have to consider if I'm just stopping everything you do, I'm not necessarily making any progress myself. So it's a balance of I hold, how long can I hold on to this uh, card that will wipe the board? You know, should I just discard it to get better stuff that will help my situation now? And that deck constantly challenges my conception of how the game, quote unquote, should be played. You know what I mean? Yeah. I I have have a friend who has a deck that out of – for those who don't know, who have never played Keyforge, let me preface real quick. It's a game where you buy a pack – you buy a deck – 
you know, buy a booster pack, you buy a full pack, you buy a full deck for 10 bucks and you get the 36, 37 cards that are needed to play uh, the game. So our friend from, from back home, Steven pulled a deck that had 28 or 29 creatures. <laughs> so, so he could just pull a whole hand that's all Sanctum or all Logo. Yeah, I think he has all Logos. Or it's Logos Untamed and I want to say Dis. Mm-hmm. So the whole time it's just, okay, here's here's seven or eight creatures for Logos. I'm going to reap with all of them or attack with a few. And because I reaped and attacked, I can pull cards. And I'm gaining Amber on top of that. Okay, it's turn two and I already have a key. For sure. So it's it's... For him, it was fun because he won a tournament with it. Hmm. But at the same time, when you play against him, it's like, I'm not having fun. Like, this is a, it's definitely a deck that once they introduce the chain system where they handicap decks, it's really going to have like a 20 chain. Oh, and that's why I really like uh, adaptive as a format because deck, and you could bring a really bad, de- bad deck to a match, but that third game. After you've so for those of you who are unfamiliar, adaptive is we play best of three. We start with our own decks and um, then we swap decks for the second game. Mm-hmm. Ooh, have won one game, then that means that each of us have only have won with one deck. I won with my deck, and then you also won with my deck, or vice versa. So the third match is you bid keys, uh, not keys. You bid chains the better deck. I've played it where you know someone's bid 14 oh my god for that deck and it's because you're self-balancing it becomes a really tight even match both ways did my yeah yeah i pay off i'm sorry i've never heard of that format they've got like five or six formats for this game it's pretty interesting but i think that one is by far the best in terms of balancing and also the most money for your dollar. You know, you're opening a pack and you're immediately playing three games. And like, that's great. You've in essence paid three and a half bucks per game. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's assuming that you don't do anything else with that deck. Oh, um, my general rule of thumb is when I buy a deck, I'll play it a few times. If I like what it does, then it might get into my pantheon of three primary decks that I carry with me everywhere. Otherwise, it'll go into a baggie. And then every now and then when I'm feeling like I don't want to play with one of my really good decks, then I'll pull out one of these random decks and see what I can do with it. See if I remember what it did well. That's kind of what I do. I have two main decks that fit in my little uh, like card box. Mm-hmm. And I have all the different like tokens and stuff from the starter pack. And then I have just a handful of decks that I'm like, hey, you want to learn how to play Keyforge? We'll both take these average decks and duke it out. Well, and worse comes to worse, um, getting into the, some of the development stuff, if I just end up not wanting to hold on to a bunch of decks, I can just use those cards for game development purposes. So no matter what, I'm paying 10 bucks for an afternoon of fun, which the same amount of money you spend on a movie ticket and i you can get a lot more entertainment i think out of your uh single keyforge deck than you can out of some movies these days but there's not a samuel jackson card yet, <laughs> yet is the keyword yet 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 there yet. has to be a card with his likeness at some point i mean um if richard garfield is going to be designing cards 
uh, with his kids as different characters, like he is oh. in this upcoming expansion, then it's only fitting that Ewell gets his own likeness in some way printed on one of those sweet Keyforge cards. That'd be so funny. So before we make this the the, the Keyforge show, uh, <laughs> Luke and I, like I said, we met at a, a Keyforge competition, and Luke was telling me that he works on making games. And as soon as he told me that, I went, I know somebody who works on games. <laughs> and uh, I wanted hey, Because to- you know me. Yeah, you, yeah. You met me. <laughs> uh, so I wanted, I wanted Luke and Declan to meet. Uh, so I thought we always talk about fallout on here and we talk about what makes a game good and what doesn't make a game good, but we never talk about the process of finding out what makes the game good. I'll sit here and bitch and moan about loot boxes and how DLC is a scam, but we never talk about why it gets made or how it gets made in, in, in a certain sense. Now, Declan is more of a video game background and Luke is more of a, a board game uh, background but I thought Declan here has also rewritten all of fifth edition D and D to fit fallout. So he, it's not like he wouldn't understand everything. And so, I've done a couple of good board games too. Yeah. Well, and to be honest, a lot of board game designers started out as video game designers and just found the community to be something that they didn't necessarily want to be a part of, or it was some kind of like, you know, work, commitment where they felt like they were too many hours to that job so on and so forth so the the process tends to be very similar in a lot of ways i see yeah i could definitely see that like um a lot of my first projects that i did um here at school were just Mm -hmm. really bad like digital projects but then i got into a few design classes and i found that i really like making board games and card games mm. and things that you play at the table with people because there's yeah. a certain interaction between people that you just can't get with a video game. Exactly. That's what I think makes the two mediums very unique. I tend to go to video games for a lot of solo experiences. This afternoon I was playing Hollow Knight, which is one of my favorites of Incredible. all time very easily. It is a masterpiece and Silk Song is going to be even better. I have no doubt. And when it comes to socializing, uh, every Monday, Tuesday, and Friday, I have regular game nights with groups of people that I – those are my socializing times Mm -hmm. because I work from home. I'm a freelancer. Uh, My full-time job is copy editing for about.com, but I also freelance in terms of my development work. And so I need excuses to get out of the house. And what better way to socialize than to go to a bar every Monday and play board games with a bunch of people from the community. It's just, it's so much more, uh, I find it to be a very welcoming feeling. I've, I've never felt more like I was a part of a community than when I started working on board games. I definitely feel that. Like, um, I did most of my board game development when I was actually studying in Croatia. That's when I was taking my first uh, board game design class. And even in another country, it's easy to find like good moments between people even if they're not game designers even if they don't play games regularly it's it's just that sit down and have good times experience yeah well and and there's board games for for just like there are video games for just about anyone out there there are the easily easily accessible apps and there are the heavy heavy like you know text adventure 
um, you know, plotting data on a map style games. Board games have very easy, flexible games like Codenames and Skull, and then very deep, complex, lengthy games like Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. It's got something for everyone, and I am a firm believer that board games should be more often utilized as teaching tools. I totally agree. And in, you know, whatever uh, other educational systems you might use. And I believe that everyone has a board game out there. Everyone has one game that they can subscribe to in some capacity, even if it's Cards Against Humanity, dare I say it. (laughs) Nothing out there for everyone. So what's the thing that you subscribe to, Luke? Um, so this is actually very interesting, um, or at least I think it is. Uh, <laughs> I have a strict rule of a 30-game collection. Um, I'm actually writing a, an article series about that. None of the articles have been published yet, uh, but I refer to it as my evergreen collection. 30 games that ultimately I want to have be the games. And there will always be shifting titles in and out. That's... It's. I think it's very narrow-minded and absurd to ever think that this collection will be quote-unquote complete. Like finished, but yeah. why I have this policy is because I'm on the hunt for those games that I truly find to be of games that I can subscribe to. And so like exemplary games. At, right, right, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm... The Castles of Burgundy, which is actually going to be getting a deluxe reprint this year, which I'm definitely picking up, including all... 10 of the mini expansions and an 11th exclusive mini expansion. So like those a definitive who aren't edition. aware. Basically, yeah. Assets and all that jazz. Um, so that's one, Castle Burgundy. It, not in any particular order. This isn't like best to worst. It's just these are all five games that I really appreciate. So Castles, Scythe, the first expansion. I own all of the expansions. I literally just got Scythe Encounters earlier today. But I think... In terms of evergreen status, the base game and the first expansion is it, it was it's what I would refer to as my favorite game of all time. That's awesome. Currently, I'm actually going to be playing Scythe um, for the first time on Saturday. Well, that's fantastic. Um, if you guys need any help in terms of rules and all of that, uh, I'll be on hand and I can teach you guys over Discord or Skype or whatever if you want. Um, I'd be more than happy to help with that, depending on the time. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Um, so Mysterium, um, which in my opinion is the best co-op game I've ever played. And, um, I think it's just more meat on its bones, which I like. Um, I actually have a number of the Dixit expansions and stuff in Mysterium to pad out the, uh, the card count because the only thing that game lacks is variety. Abyss, which is a brilliant game design for, uh, I guess you would call it a bidding-style tableau-building game, something like that. It's a very unique game in terms of what it does, including its vision of uh, of a world that you exist in, of the Deluxe Edition, which is just a beautiful example of that isn't necessarily complex or super like competitive, but elicits a feeling that no other game does. And that's ultimately what I look for in these games. Games that are accessible look fantastic because I mean, no matter what anyone says, production value is important. And even Castles of Burgundy in its old state, I think looks great in certain ways and does something that no other game out there does. Scythe does a thing 
building with quote unquote worker placement with that no other game does. Takedo is an entirely unique experience that I don't think any other game has come close to, you know, comparing to. Uh, Abyss is this this charm and this vision and this you know complete package within the box that I think is just a very smart way of handling that genre. All of these games are things that I think best. And if another game comes along and proves me wrong, then hey, maybe they deserve a spot on the shelf as well. Yeah, like more power to Five, designers right, step exactly. up their game. And more and more games uh, from last year are catching my eye. Uh, Cryptid is a marvelous game that Osprey Games came out with last year that very few people are talking about. Uh, Coimbra Lands, um, Hanamakoji are all recent games that I think are brilliant, but don't often get the attention that they necessarily deserve. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. Do you think it's possible to have a single-player board game? I mean, there are a bunch of solo games out there. My one games? friend, my one friend designs solo board games. That's like his thing. Really? It's a whole genre, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I didn't know that was a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually done some reviews on some of those. Um, I'm not a huge fan of them personally. Like mm-hmm. I said earlier, I go to video games for my solo style play. Mm-hmm. But when a solo game, when a solo board game does story well, that's when I get invested. That's when I become interested in what people have to say about it. And um, that's just a personal taste. There are a lot of people who will happily throw down uh, Onirum any day of the week. If you guys want to see a neat solo board game, download the app Onirum for free. Or maybe it might be a dollar app now. I'm not sure. Well, watch but, out. They're not, they're not sponsoring the show yet. <laughs> <laughs> but for those of you who have never heard it, check that out. And there are a ton of print-and-play solo games out there very easily. That's one of the easiest ways of picking that up. But I hopefully will have, be having the opportunity to take a look at Renegade's upcoming story-driven solo game, whose name I forget off the top of my head, so don't mind the click-clacking of me looking up. I don't, I'm not in any way endorsing the game. I don't know if it's any good. I haven't seen it or touched it, but I'm hopefully going to be proving grounds. And it's a start of a new game series, I guess, that focuses on narrative. Hmm. And I find that to I be see. interesting. So I'd be curious to see if it's any good. See, Renegade Games has, in my opinion, like a uh, hit or miss kind of feel to them, where some of their games are just really good and other titles of their games like i just don't don't like them personally and i think that's because renegade is very good at having a little bit of everything so some games on their shelf will be something that you're super into and other games on their shelf will be something you're super not into because they just have a little bit of all the things see i think the reason why i brought up single player board games is because you said that you like to go to uh video games for or solo experience and i've been trying to play this new apex game it's it's Mm -hmm. just Fortnite for adults and it's okay but my number one complaint with the game is that i have to play with other people and that's a good thing and a bad thing because 
I'm not going to talk to people online because it's just, it's, it's like emotionally draining to try to have a conversation with someone through a microphone. And mm-hmm. they're like, I want to go here. I want to go, uh, I want to go there. But if I play with a friend, totally different story. But my least favorite part about a lot of board games is that I have to play with people because like right. we'll play D and D for six, seven hours at a time. And you get the what you get a kid who's like gung ho about the game for the first two hours, and then he doesn't want to be a jerk and leave when everyone else wants to hang around and play, but he also doesn't want to play anymore. So you get like you, I think what it comes down to with me is you get this this varying degree of interest and excitability from from all of the parties involved, and. I think it ultimately comes down to the old saying of too many cooks spoil the stew or whatever the hell the thing is. Mm-hmm. And it just becomes like, if, if I'm at a hundred percent excitement, like when I go play Keyforge, I'm at a hundred percent excitement the entire time until I start feeling drained. And that's only after seven, eight, nine games. Then I need to take a break, have a drink, get a snack, play a couple more rounds. But mm-hmm. like, but that I think is easier for me at least because it's, it's me and you. It's not me and the ranger and the druid and the tank and the rogue. It's just me and a person. And I hate playing D and D with, with three people. One of those people being the, the DM, but playing D and D with eight people is a fresh hell that nobody should experience. Let me tell you. Oh yeah. Yeah. I've oh done that God. before. <sighs> I've, my only D and D experience has been with eight people and it was miserable absolutely it was so i've been a part of four attempts at playing a DD campaign the fourth one was the only one that stuck it was me and my ex-fiance my roommate and his ex-fiance it was uh mark oh mark uh yeah real (laughs) cool guy um GMing or DMing D&D for like 35 years. Oh, wow. So he was the one who was introducing five of us who were new to the game of, the, the, way eight, to do it. of the eight players uh, living nightmare. Um, I really enjoyed being a theater kid playing and stuff, mm-hmm. but the number crunching crunched me <laughs> a state of just mind-numbing hell. What version of D&D did you play? Ender, technically, you know, speaking. Oh, Pathfinder. And, um... (laughs) I'll be right back. Yeah, Pathfinder! Shut the fuck up. (laughs) Uh, But while the... While the, uh... The designer is away... (laughs) Play... I I uh, no it, it, I've never played Pathfinder from what I've what I've been told. Hmm. It's pretty much uh, I've returned. Much, ah. Pathfinder is pretty much three point five of D and D kind of. It's yeah, three point five point five point good. Yeah, I I really like fifth edition D and D because it's very much okay. You have a plus three to your to your speech. Are you proficient? Okay, it's a plus five. Great. You have advantage. All right. Roll it twice. Take the highest. It's so just, it's beautifully just so well done. It's so, it's so open to interpretation. I've been playing fifth edition since, uh, since Jesus left Chicago. I don't even know since friggin' 2014. Yeah. I'm playing for quite a while and I still don't know how the game works at all. But I have a fun time playing it. 
<laughs> I there, similarly very much like fifth edition for its simplicity for new players. And it yeah, still has an up death or an up uh death. I'm sorry. <laughs> there is death. death. Um for people to get really into it. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing though, is that no matter how you slice it. D&D and Pathfinder are a very, is a very specific kind of RPG. And there are so many RPG offerings out there that are way more accessible and I think are much easier to get players in on the ground level. What did you have? Declan, what was that Monster of the Week game? Monster of the Week? Anything powered by the Apocalypse is incredible for that. That's Wait, that's the name of the game is Anything Powered by the Apocalypse? No, Powered by the Apocalypse is like an engine. And Monster of the Week is like a oh. version of that. Oh, the game was actually called Monster of the Week. Yes. Oh, I thought that's what you were just calling it. It was like, oh, we're going to play that Monster of the Week game. No, it's like actually called Monster of the Week. I thought you were saying about how like an overprotective father would be like, I don't want my daughter Douglas boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> sorry, go on. That's cool. But I mean, like, even even simpler than that, uh, the, the easiest example I could bring to the table is The Extraordinary Adventures of Baron Munchausen, which is an old drinking game that has been adapted into an RPG back in 1998 and since been republished by Fantasy Flight Games. And the basic premise is you and your friends are all drinking at a bar or something or in your home like I would be because bars I, – I don't enjoy the atmosphere of bars generally speaking – and um, so you're out at this social gathering drinking, and you're all in in the theme of the game. If you choose to, you're all very aristocratic individuals, smirched <laughs> indubitably. And um, you've each lords who are bragging about these insane things that you clearly never did. And so <laughs> when it's your turn, you you turn to someone and go, "Oh, um, my good." friend baron mark could you please remind us of the time that you shot yourself out of a cannon at the great estate of uh lady winchauser to win her her favor could you remind me how that uh how that played out and so game of improv where you have to challenge other players to do these insane improv scenarios and uh the other players can every now and then go oh but uh, the dragon uh how does the how did the dragon play into the scenario could you remind me of that i love what is this called it's called the extraordinary adventures of baron munchausen uh it's a very light silly drinking game where it's just kind of like whatever anything goes um but it provides a solid framework to sort of be like you're betting with coins, and if you lose a specific round or something, you buy the next round of drinks or what have you. And it's this very just like tongue-in-cheek style game. I love games like that. Absolutely. I've never and, played a game like this. Well, it's a game that you don't really need the rule book for it. Like, might be Actually, someone to go out and purchase the book if I was someone to play it frequently. But in order to really try it out, you can just kind of probably Google the general gist of what the game is and then try it for yourself. It's one of those games where the rules are almost to what the, the overall experience is meant to do. All right. Okay. Then I have a question for you once again, Mm -hmm. have you ever played secret Hitler? I uh, have it on my shelf. I was going to talk about secret Hitler. I fucking love secret Hitler so much. Oh my God. No, honestly, I can, 
it's it's pretty easy to see why a lot of people like it. I enjoy it because I think it does deduction a little bit better than Resistance and some other games like that, personally. M- mechanically better so that it's not just, you're the werewolf. It's you. I don't know why. I just want to accuse someone. <laughs> I see. I, I didn't I, mean to cut off your excitement. No, 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 no. No, because... I like how you brought that up because my favorite part of Secret Hitler is just getting the Hitler card and going, I'm Hitler, fucking liar. That's my favorite part. <laughs> just just fighting with everybody. I'm Hitler. No, you're not Hitler. I am Hitler. I think that's – and just when when the first time we played it, we were at Declan's house and I yelled, I am Hitler. Nobody can stop me. Me and Ava Braun are going to march right into Russia. And like Declan's parents walked in. We're like, what is going on? <laughs> it was just, uh, I, it's it's just a game that, it's also a game that if you get the right people, you can just yell at each yeah, other for absolutely. like an hour. And it's very cathartic. And it's just like, because like you'll yell at somebody about being a Democrat or being a Nazi. And you'll just be like, no, you fucking fascist. And then like 20 minutes into yelling, you're just like, why the fuck did you never bring back my Game Boy in the third grade? Like, it's just, <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Like, it just gets a bunch of emotions out. Absolutely. I was actually planning on playing Secret Hitler tomorrow with a bunch of people. I wish I had friends that I could play it with because that game is fucking phenomenal. It is. Okay, it's sure. just really fun, especially when you know the people you're playing with. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's the best way of going about it because then you start getting into the mind games of I see what you're doing. I know what side you're on. Oh shit. Oh no. I have no idea what you're doing. Oh god. Like just the the cogs turning as the game progresses and it's like you're Merlin. No wait, maybe you're you're uh Lancelot. Uh no, you're you're on the other team. Shit. What are you what Bad people, what's going on? Anything that breaks my brain, I'm into. (laughs) Speaking of breaking brains, one of my evergreen games, if you would, is the great game of Mal. Mal. Are you familiar, Luke? Um, type it into Google. No, 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 you're not allowed to do it. If you Google it, it ruins the whole game for you. Oh, okay, fair enough. You have to, okay, so this... I like to this 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 is like herpes the game. Hear me out. Is it just one of those games where it's like you don't know the rules and you have to figure out the rules? Yes. Yes. Okay. But with a twist. Uh, oh my so god. So this doesn't I make very Mao. good radio content, but if anyone is ever exposed to the great game of Mao, jump on it. If you know what Mao is, let's get some Boone's wife in the chat. Yeah. But I just wanted to put that out there into the ether if anyone knows about this game. It is so incredibly fun. To know how to play. Yeah. It's, it's the best way I can, I can describe Mao is just like, uh, remember learning how to ride a bike and like that, that wonder that filled, filled in, up inside of your stomach where you're like, Oh my God, I'm moving and I'm going and I'm going quickly. And like, then you look back and you're looking at your dad and he's just like waving at you and you're like, he's not helping me. And the training wheels have been off the whole time. Like that. <laughs> I have a that different perspective. Mao. Really? For me, Mao is like knowing that you're sick and then coughing on your worst enemy. Wow. Wow. How did you get the pessimistic view and I got the the childlike wonder? It's normally flipped with us. <laughs> yeah, right? It's I just love Mao. One of those games. We played Declan came home from school one time and it was all we did when we met up. It was like, hey, 
come on over for dinner today. All right, cool. I'll be there at five. Showed up at five, ate dinner with his folks, and then it was like, all right, Mao, and then it was just Mao until 2 a.m. Yeah. It's just it's it's one of those games that engrosses you and it's you all you need is two decks of cards. You need a hundred and four no, not even. You need it or no, are the jokers in the game? Yes and I don't, no. Okay, okay. So yeah, you need a hundred and four playing cards and you're good to go. Jokers, it's, then it's hundred and eight oh, are yes. b- before the jokers. I would assume the jokers were kept into that fifty two. That makes no, sense. I'm gonna shut I my used, mouth. Somebody take over. <laughs> I used to uh be a blackjack dealer, so I'm very intimate with oh, the really? card count of decks. Yeah, don't do it. Don't don't do it. Save yourself. Really? Why? Cause you spend your so my experience with uh blackjack, I'm not gonna name where I worked. It was Blackjack mm-hmm. and Baccarat, which is an even and miserable game. I don't, I don't know how to play um, that. Baccarat is like war. It's like war. Oh, okay, like okay, I flip okay, a card, okay. you flip a card, and someone okay. wins. Okay. Rules in it for no reason. And it's insane. So my experience with Blackjack is I worked Wednesday through Sunday, 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. Ooh. And yeah, so that's pretty average characters. for Blackjack dealers. You work the night shift. Yeah. Because that's when people come out to play. That's when the degeneracy <laughs> comes out. <laughs> I wouldn't say that, although I did have a lot of players who – I had one player who walked in with his landlord who he owned, oh my God. owed that much – that month's rent to his landlord. And he was borrowing money in order to win back the money that he needed to pay rent for the month. Did he do it? And he lost it all and then he <sighs> borrowed more. Oh my god! It was god. that level of like stuff, pretty consistently. Like, is, is that the at worst? least one? No. What's the? I have what the worst is worst kind of player that you'll approach. That's the worst. Like, oh, that just I don't want to. Don't don't come to my table because I don't want to like. I don't want to enable do this that to you because let's be honest. Every casino game is designed with the house in in mind. Like, yeah, you don't Jack. play to win. You play to have fun. Blackjack has 50-50 only if you're counting cards. And if you are counting cards, there is a room with no cameras that you will be taken to. <laughs> do you know how to count cards? Yes, I do. Because I was taught it so that I could keep an eye out for it. Because that was a part of my job. Uh-huh. And it's very difficult. And you almost consistently will get caught unless you are very smart. And if you are caught you will be taken to the room without any cameras because I worked in security. Like there is totally a room that is just off of the grid. I believe it. But that's a little bit of a sidebar. So the worst kind of player you'll get is the is the completely irate player who believes they should always win, treats the other players around the table like garbage, doesn't tip you at all because, fun fact, Tris, make all of your money based off of tips in blackjack, baccarat, any kind of card dealing. Yeah, most people don't know that because the casinos don't have to inform their customers about it for the most part. But yeah, we live off of tips. And that is, generally speaking, not well known, which is difficult for our wallets. (laughs) Yeah. And But they're the kind of people who will tell you to go kill yourself after having lost twenty thousand dollars at your table because it was your fault that they didn't get the ace of spades when they needed it and when i got blackjack right off the bat and screwed them over it was very clearly something i decided to do willingly can we can we just talk about 
having that much money. Like, imagine being able to bet twenty grand comfortably. And twenty grand on a single hand, my friend. Oh my god, that's disgusting. You, you see it all, seriously. And I don't even like. Imagine the weight of twenty grand. Ah. Oh. Oh, I've I've felt twenty grand in my hand as I took it from a player and put it into the rack. Wow, that's, that's an experience, insane. and it's one that gives you such chills when it first happens. But the player, it's like it's nothing less. It's like oh, another twenty grand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Here I am struggling to fucking get avocados if they're any higher than a dollar. This and the big. the high rollers, the high rollers have their own reserve tables. They have, you know, a dealer come over and deal a few hands. And then if they're not winning, they're like, I don't like this dealer. Go get a new one. Yeah, and they're spending enough money. The casino's not going to say no. Yeah, so they shuffle you around. I I was at a table where I was called over from the table I was dealing to deal to these high rollers. And they were a bit, you know, bad people from a morals perspective and misogynistic and generally shitty human beings, but they were nice in terms of they treated me better than some other customers. Really? There was a certain point where it was just like, mm, no, you're not dealing to us anymore. Cause you're not dealing us good cards. We, like we like you, but we can't have you deal us any more cards. So I stood there and just chatted with them for like 10, 15 minutes while I waited for the casino to get someone to replace me with. Wow. Just that weird, like, yeah. awkward, like, I have to make conversation with you or else we're both standing here staring at a wall. <laughs> yeah. That's that's like a that's a life that I think would be great to live for like six months. Just like, here's five million. Go fucking live in not squalor but like just go bet thousands at a time bet did you ever did you ever hear that story about michael jordan no michael jordan is like a degenerate gambler right really yeah and if michael jordan wants me to stop talking about his his gambling habits just send me a couple dozen pairs of shoes and it's all over uh but (laughs) (laughs) uh he was playing like okay michael jordan is such a big gambler that like he would play he would play he would play cards from the second a game was over. The second a game was over, he would fly to a new city, find the casino, play all night after having played till 6 a.m., maybe sleep, go work out and practice, and then play that night. Wow. Sure. And I'm- yeah, he's a he was a fucking maniac. Then he's in, I think, Vegas with Wayne Gretzky, who's like the Michael Jordan of hockey. Who's who's he's the armor of hockey. And <laughs> and the, the waitress comes over and gives Michael Jordan a drink and Michael Jordan like a dollar chip on the waitress's tray and Wayne Gretzky grabbed the chip or he might not even grab the chip off the tray, but he grabs one of Michael Jordan's hundred dollar chips, threw it on the tray and was like, Michael, act like a fucking adult. Wow. Like he's just like a stingy gambles all the time. Just like, yeah, yeah. And there's another time that I heard today. Apparently, I could be wrong when I say this. There was like a basketball camp type thing that Michael Jordan was sponsoring or some shit. And or he was just there for. And someone's like, all right, Michael, if you can. And they're like easy shots. He's like, all right, Michael, if you can hit these next five free throws, all these kids are getting free shoes. Right. And he goes, he goes, man, fuck those kids. And he left. No way. Mm, that shit's so funny to me. Sorry. Humanity yeah. at its finest, clearly. Yeah, you're making how much money? You got a lifetime deal with Nike that's putting your grandkids' grandkids through Harvard. Come on. 
Uh, yeah, but you know what? I think uh, I think the most important thing about any game, any game whatsoever, should be number one, first and foremost, is that it's fun. Yes. Oh, that's a very subjective thing, but I would say I'd love to deep dive into making that. it fun for a particular audience. Absolutely, finding. So it's hard to sort of define when getting into a design of a board game, one elicits the feeling of fun. But I think ultimately provide fun for my audience. And from the very basis, you have to ask yourself when you're designing a game, what's my audience? Who am I designing this for? Or solo gamers, if it's a solo game, specifically for that, because that's a, a very particular kind of gamer. It might be for a casual audience. It might be for the nitty gritty number crunchers. It might be for what, what kind of feeling am I trying to elicit? And through that, what's my audience because of that? So for instance, let's say uh, we're designing an RPG. Let's do it. Let's do it right now. Let's do it. What kind of RPG are we going to make? What audience do we want to aim for? Do we want to make it accessible to grandma? Do we want to make it something that you take to the bar? So it's maybe a little bit, then something you can bring home, right? Something that you can bring home to your family, not necessarily. Okay. Is it is it something that maybe has a few more mechanics on it? Maybe you've got some combat in there. Maybe you've got some light dice rolling, but it's specifically narratively driven. Maybe it's on the level of D anD D and Pathfinder and so on and so forth. So, what level are we talking about here? Let's let's say let's make let's make a game and let's make mm-hmm. it that it's. I either want it where it appeals to everyone in the way that a game like secret Hitler does where it's very much you learn the rules or I want it to apply to the sweatiest of Schwetzers where <laughs> it's, it's just, you have to be so deep into the lore and mechanics that you like you, you're speaking Klingon. Like, you know what I mean? Like, right. Well, I mean, considering the amount of time that we have to work with, let's, let's go with the former over the latter. I would say. Okay. All right. I agree. So all right. we're looking at a game that generally is, easier to learn so Mm -hmm. a bit more accessible doesn't necessarily have entirely family-friendly content but can if -hmm. you choose to and is let's say all games are family family friendly it depends on how close you are to your family sure sure. uh how many players are we looking at uh do we want to make this we're looking at six uh, four or five six Six do we want to make it air rpg do we want to make it i would like to see Hmm? this be Kind of more of like a party game, so keeping it very light. Like five, six, optimal, but generally yeah. speaking, the okay. numbers can vary. No, sure. yeah, okay, let's, yeah, I, I like six. Let's go with six. Six is a good number for RPGing. Yeah. So we've got an intent and we've got an audience. Now, let's narrow that audience down a little bit because just saying it's a you know a general game for and people RPG isn't super helpful for adults. Let's look at so for a lot of people, depending on who you are, John. When John Gilmore designs something, theme is last in his mind. Theme okay. is the last thing he looks at. He goes deep into mechanics and then he labels stuff later. Me, I need a theme to like really bite my teeth into before I can even give a damn about I how agree. it plays. When you design games, do you follow any of the like uh, academic frameworks, like um? <laughs> I personally really like uh, Robin Honecky's MDA, Mechanics, Dynamics, and Aesthetics. 
I think it's just a really good way to organize your thoughts around designing a game. I was wondering if you do anything like that. I mean, so that's a little bit harder for me to to necessarily go into because while I have worked on designing games before, it's mostly been in a development perspective. I haven't had any of my own games published in any way, but when I do work on them, I tend to not necessarily work with any rigid. I find that to be while they are helpful bullet points to look at to the natural process of going through it. Um, for me, design agree, yeah. comes from a mixture of passion, an immediate spark of like, I want to do this. And then uh, what's the word for it? A, a rigid dedication to the project henceforth of, Oh my God, this game needs to exist. There needs to be that drive. And I'm going to be the one who does it. And then there has to be a consistent, all right, today I okay. need to work on this part. And if I don't work on this part, I'm a sad sack who isn't actually making any development with this. And I need to actually I have to ask a question. You just said you feel like the game, like, all oh, this needs to exist. Yeah, I mean, th- well, it depends on your definition of need. But yeah, I was going to ask you, what's your definition of need? Talking about game design, it's something really out there that I want to see made real. Mm-hmm. I I need that thing to exist. There's something out there that I just so desperately want to create, you know? As a designer, as a as a creator, I make a lot of things. I, you know, make articles, videos, I make food for people, you know? There's gotta mm-hmm. be that spark of like, this thing needs to to be want it to be a thing. And going a little philosophical on you needs to exist none of us need to exist we have no purpose in this world and go so on <laughs> why not create why not create a purpose for yourself i love for any specific reason it. it's existentialism at its finest i don't have any reason to exist so i will create my reason to exist and that reason is to design and develop and to make board gaming the best medium it can possibly be oh i mean i i need this game to exist it's something that i i just desperately want to be in this world and i want my name attached to it i want to you know get the the stars in my eyes as i walk down the convention aisle and everyone's like oh my god is that the designer of such and such not really i don't give a shit about that that's (laughs) but it's always like if you're going if if you're going to board gaming for the fame (laughs) <laughs> you, you took a wrong turn like 20 <laughs> turns ago. Start making your way back. Hey, 20 we'll turns is like two minutes. Sure, sure. Can sure. I get a high five? Can I get a high five, Declan? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. But, yeah, no, no, I, I, no feel you, I feel you. I feel you. So getting back on track. So we have an RPG. We've got yeah. six players. We've got what's going to be our theme. Don't you dare. Don't you dare give me some rinky dink like. I want it to be a fantasy. Like, give me something interesting to chew on. All right. There's a million fantasy games out All right. there. What it's, 1980, it's 1988. The crack ep- epidemic is in full swing. I'm not what saying epidemic. Ronald, the crack epidemic. Okay, sure. I'm not, I'm not saying it's Ronald Reagan. Not saying it's not Ronald Reagan's fault. What mm-hmm. I am saying is I'm a kid from the streets and I'm trying to make money and I'm trying to make sure that my family can eat. What gang do like- I join? I feel like this is just going to turn into Deadly Class, the RPG, if you're familiar with that comic. I'm not. First off, you should familiarize yourself. What's Second it called? Off, Deadly Class? It's called Deadly Class. It is a phenomenal comic. It was just made into a TV show. I don't know if the show's any good. We've got a 15-year-old kid 
who's a beggar, who has been on the streets for a very long time for reasons that the narrative gets into. One goal in life is to kill Ronald Reagan because what? He, he blames him for the death of his parents due to a variety of different circumstances and reasons. And it's as illogical as it sounds, but it makes sense for a 15-year-old kid who lives on the streets. And he's basically taken in by Ex- Professor Xavier if he was an old kook who was raising a bunch of assassins from a variety of different nationalities. So, okay, hold on. Mm. Does Jodie Foster come into him wanting to kill Reagan in any way? No. No. Okay. Hope that that clarifies in a in a satisfying manner. No, yeah. It's not okay, I'm going to totally look into it. It's by Image. I'm totally going to look into it. Yeah, Image Comics is the best. But we we keep getting off track, and while I enjoy getting off track, so you're saying that the, the RPG is what gang am I going to join? Yeah, but Gang Simulator. The problem with that comes in that in an RPG, a lot of players ne- need to work together because what's the number one rule of D&D I always hear? Don't split the Don't party. Don't split the party. Yeah, you're right. Okay, okay. How about this then? How about the way it starts off is it's like I'm the kid who knows how to steal cars or I'm the kid who knows how to do this and I'm the kid who knows how to do that, but you form your own gang. That's what I was just going to say. Okay. Simple solution. You're a gang. You have found your each other for that you'll get into with your characters, so on and so forth. So we have a general theme. Uh, 1988 Uggs gangs. Cool. You are. That's up to you. You. We're, we're going to give you some, some suggestions, some options. And those are going to come with some perks and some drawbacks. But generally speaking... You have free reign over what kind of group you are, how you function, so on and so forth. Is this going to be more narrative, or is this going to be more nitty-gritty, number-crunching data? To say hmm. the former, because we're trying to make this more accessible. And the more stuff, the more mechanics you plug into a game, the harder it's going to be to get it to more audience members. I would say make it a bit more narrative. to hmm. like, a, like you said, make it more accessible i would i would do it i would do it more narrative but i would do everything past fail uh like i would still have roles like D D. I would right absolutely where it's like instead of like instead of like um like you have a 50 50 chance roll it you rolled a you rolled a 12 it happens you rolled a nine it doesn't but it's like you have a, a 75 pass fail split in, in a positive direction, it's you have to roll uh, a 17 or an 18, and then same in the opposite direction. But then I would have damage, depending on the weapons you're using, would just be all of the other polyhedral dice, and then maybe a modifier per level or something small like that. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, I can see that being good, yeah. It's 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 basic. You can play with one set of dice, and everybody can get Exactly. Yeah, you, what we're basically designing here... And I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, pull the cloth off of the exhibits, the, the big elephant in the room right now. What we're basically designing is a rethemed Kids on Bikes is a game designed by Renegade Games, designed by Jonathan Gilmore and Doug Lewandowski, both individuals who I've worked with both in the past and in the present, around narrative storytelling in which, like, uh, you explained, Vince, you have pass fail. Roll checks mm-hmm. with each of your the different dice uh, interacting with a specific stat. 
You're trying to you're basically playing Stranger Things. That's so that. you are kids. Cool. You are kids it. and you are trying to make it through the day destroying it or whatever. Uh and it's it's very specific to I want to tell a good story and it's more improvisational than anything else. Cool. I really well, think, think Sorry, go on. Say things, please. I think the fact that we kind of ended up veering towards something that already exists means that the idea has some kind of potential. Oh yeah, absolutely. What we were designing has merit. And while I was kind of guiding you down this road to a specific point to sort of kind of make a point. So while I was kind of trying to guide the narrative or the narrative of us making this game to get to a particular point, you guys were coming up with a lot of this stuff intuitively um, particularly Vince with the discussion on the dice and how they function in the game, that when it comes to design, it's not about being original. Everything already exists in some capacity. There will always be comparisons to games because games are all borrowing from each other openly. Mm-hmm. The question is, do you make this game unique enough in terms of how it feels, in terms of how it plays, in terms of how you present it, more worth people's time than what's already there. That's the kicker. Because there's inspiration mm-hmm. everywhere. Everything is already exists. Absolutely. If you watch, um, there's a five-video miniseries called Everything's a Remake that goes into music and movies and a ton of other mediums and go, hey, you like Star Wars? Everything <laughs> in, in this is just pulled from other source material. Yeah, You can literally pull scenes from other movies that are copy and pasted. Like it is very clear that George Lucas had a particular vision that he pulled from. And that's fine. That's perfectly fine. That's how we come up with the things that we do, but making it something that feels all its own is what matters. Another example of this in a completely different industry is actually Apple because Mm -hmm. the only thing that's, technically ever been invented by apple was the magsafe charging mechanism on the old Macs. everything else is just taking technology that already exists and curating it in a way that feels right and making the two thousand dollars yes absolutely well they have a monopoly on it they have have a monopoly on this specific way of presenting information and technology and data and so on and so forth. So they can do that. And monopolies are never good, but that's why they do it. That's why they can do it. Yeah. So like at the end of the day, whenever you look at anything to design or develop, it's not enough to just go, this game, you know, works fundamentally, uh, technically this game works, but does it, it just works. (laughs) work well enough where my players go yeah i'd play this again yeah you know this is a better version of that i would rather play this over that to that and it's not a perfect science people are always looking for yeah people are always looking for that lightning in a bottle and some people find it dead of winter is a franchise that a lot of people love and it for everyone i dislike playing dead of winter but I recognize what it does and what it does, the press of atmosphere that players are forced to struggle through and go, Oh, we're never going to do this. We're never going to make it right. And really makes on, me someone, feel that 
Someone made a game of my thoughts? <laughs> I've never played this. A winner, really? No, I've never even heard of it. It looks like The Walking Dead. Yes. Uh, so I've mentioned his name a couple times now, but John Gilmore is the primary designer of that game. And uh, that was his big breakout hit. Huh. He uh, brought it to life through, uh, what was it, Plat Hat Games. It's a game that very much facilitates narrative, but okay. has a significant number of mechanics in it to keep the game sort of moving. And it's I, very slow and methodical, and there's a good amount of luck, and there's a good amount of, like, I certainly hope I don't lose. But at the same time, it's a game that, going into it, you shouldn't really be like, I'm going to win, I'm going to lose. It's more so, in my opinion, I'm going to experience. And that's what people really want. Like, this yeah, it's great me. to win. But you want to have a feeling that you've gained something other than just winning. You want to feel that what you're doing is meaningful. Hey, look at Betrayal House on the Hill. Exactly. Anyone, anyone who knows any ounce of game design will look at that game and it's like, oh, this is a mess. Like, half of the scenarios don't work right. So many random factors that play into it. You get games that either the traitor dies within a turn of being revealed or the game drags for three hours. But they make stories. That game makes experiences. And people can point to that game and go, I remember the time that you were a werewolf and you were chasing me down that hallway and I threw a grenade at you and you were able to, you know, just dodge out of the way in time or, or whatever, you know. Um, that game makes memories. And while it's a game I, my shelf, just because it's not my kind of game, I need some mechanics, some competition in a game for it to be really like something I can super engage with. A game that has persevered because of what it does, because of that experience that it can create, and because of the narratives that people can carry with them. People basically advertise the game on Hill because they have all of these stories that they can pull out of their back pocket and share. And I think part of the appeal of D&D is that. Because if you look at 5e, the current version of D&D, the balance is a mess. Mm -hmm. Is it really? Oh, yeah. If you look at the spells and the power curves, and even oh, just the class design, yeah. it is just a complete wreck. But it is so fun to create that world and invite people into it. Okay, I agree with you there, Declan, but I'd also like to make a point. That just because just we brought D&D &D up for the 49th time, <laughs> if you're playing D&D &D for the first time or the f millionth time, do not min-max a character. <clears throat> I hate min-maxing a character so much. It, there's no point in min-maxing a character. Why would you want to do it in that? Make your character afraid. There is a point to be the best like no one ever was. And Fine. to stop all the competition out in your vicious bid for superiority. Great, fine. If that's how that, that's how you want to play, 
fine. Be somebody with immense power, but play a character where you're constantly wearing a crown of thorns, the pain of the crown, to suppress that that rage, that anger, that power from coming out of you because you don't want to come off as a pretentious asshole that's ma- that's ruining it for the rest of the group because you get into an encounter that re- in all reality only lasts about three minutes worth of combat, even though three minutes worth of combat is going to be three and a half to four hours. It's going to be a three-minute combat s- situation, and out out of the ten fucking uh, gnolls or goblins <laughs> that, or, or something that you just killed, out of the, the the six of them, you because you min maxed your character and made your character a stat block and not a character, you killed uh, five out of the six. And yeah, it was cool that you did a fucking whispering arrow into a fucking flame shot that you misty step backwards, moonwalked like Michael Jackson into the one dude's face and then exploded it like. Like, that's awesome. Great. Fine. But you know who's going to have a lot more fun? The dude who is trying to find out where his parents ran off to because he has a necklace that was left behind. And because of this necklace, he's on this trip with these people who never met. And he also doesn't know how to swim, but he didn't tell anybody that. So when you get to the part where you, like, it's so much cooler than just being a fucking wizard with Christ powers. Like, you know what I mean? Sorry to go on this rant of, of, of <laughs> no, no, no. mid-maxing I'm, a character, I'm, but like I'm leaning back in my uh, my therapy chair, going, mm-hmm, "Tell me more, <laughs> tell me, tell me your pain, please." No, it's just like it's I, absolutely I, valid. That's why for me RPGs tend to fall flat because the players. If you have bad players, if you have players who are so obsessed with just having the best things without any care inclination towards what it means to then you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, RPGs I, tend to allow for that a lot more often than other games because they have looser rules to allow for that because they're, they're the Skyrim of board games. They provide <laughs> such freedom, such openness that and poke and prod will find the glitches and go, ha ha. I have found the glitch and I'm going to go make a million dollars by making a million daggers. Except that in Skyrim, you're playing by yourself. Yeah. Frickin' D and D you have to drag the other five players along with you to suffer. Yep. I have two, I have two examples of something I'd like to bring up regarding a, an RPG. That is a board game setting. We have a friend, Steven shout out to Steven, um, that for fun, we'll just make characters for D&D. He'll never play them. He just likes making them. He likes making a quick little backstory. He will min-max a character, but I think he does min-maxing in such a beautiful way because Steven is good at casting spells and nothing else. He will make it where his character can shoot a ray out of his finger that can kill people, but if he needs to do literally anything else... He's rolling at it like a negative one, negative two, or a, at a non-modifier. He just he does it where he's he's good at one thing and one thing only, and he lets the improv- improvisation of the way he plays kind of fill it out. In that same regard, the D and D for the Fallout version that Declan has created, my character cannot fight whatsoever, cannot heal, can I mean, except, my, except the exception. Sorry. <laughs> Except the exceptions. 
that I've rolled. There was one time where I've I've done anything fight. I jumped on a death and I had a straight razor and I rolled a 20 to hit it and I cut a big gash in the death claw's face. That's the only time Ron has ever done anything. There was one time where I had a box of Abraxo and I dirtied it up and put it in my jacket and I said I had a bomb, pointed a gun at somebody and said, I'm going to let the bomb go off if you don't let me out of this cage. I mean, I love playing a character that can't fight. I love a character that has a handicap, essentially. I, that's that's how you play RPGs, is you have characters with flaws, and those flaws, like the flaws of our real personas, hold us back from being these perfect godlike entities that some people want out of games. And it's really a question of... Do I want this to be God Simulator where I can feel good about myself? Or do I want to really actually explore a story where I create someone that is just as flawed as I am? And ultimately, RPGs in my eyes should be a way of self-reflection. It should be a way to look at yourself and go, what could I be better at? Prove. What more could I do as me? And then explore that through creating a flawed character that reflects your flaws. Not a lot of people want to admit they have those flaws. Well, not a lot of people really want to admit to any wrongdoing, any form of, you know, negativity. I'm the kind of person who I was getting out of my car earlier and I remembered where I'm, you know, I'm super embarrassed about it, but there was a time when I was doing a theater thing and I accidentally uh, read a character in what would be construed as a, a racist manner. Know that I was doing it at the time. I didn't recognize it. It was only with reflection afterwards when I was thinking back on the memory where I went, oh shit, I was an asshole in that scenario. That's something that people are quick to pretend didn't happen yeah because we live in a society where you say that and people go up oh, you're unredeemable go die in hell we hate you yeah we, yeah everyone's was... done it once or twice everyone's made mistakes and admitting to it and recognizing it and growing from it by recognizing that it happened harder and way better than walking through life ignorantly mistakes never happen if you don't fess up to the wrongdoings that you've done you can never become better and with that deep moment i would like to bring to your attention a very deep intro music that we use (laughs) that intro music is feather duster by the illustrious shane ivers if you would like to get feather duster you can get that at silvermansounds.com slash free music slash feather duster. But Vince, where can the listeners find our show? If you'd like to find this show, you can find us on tw- Atomic Radio Hour on Twitter, all one word. But what about you, Declan? If they want to find you, where can they find you? If you want to find me, you can... Find me on Twitter at Declan underscore Bean. But what about yourself? Me? Yeah, you. If you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at the, all capitals, the underscore Boogans. But what about our special guest? Do you want to plug yourself, sir? Yeah, sure. Why not? Let's do it. 
If you want to find me on the interwebs, well, sonny boy, do I have a link for you? If you, uh, <laughs> if you head on over to thecardboardherald.com, you can find a number of my interviews, articles, so on and so forth. I do some writing and such for them. Um, eventually, you'll see some work that I've been doing come out in the near future. I can't really talk about the project that I'm currently developing, but in a couple of weeks, I may be able to go into more uh, descriptive discussion regarding uh, some projects that will be coming out on the horizon that I've We'd been We'd love developing. to hear about them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You're just totally. working on that earlier this evening before I got on. And I'm really excited to delve into the kind of work that I've been doing and, you know, why and how. And development as a whole, I mean, de- developers get a bad rap because – not a bad rap, but we're the editors of board games. And no one likes hiring editors. I'm great at writing. I don't need a stinking editor. <laughs> if you'd like to be an editor for the show, uh, <laughs> totally, totally uh, volunteer work. Can't pay you in anything except exposure. Oof. Um, no, I want to end up on Slash for exposure. I, I know, I'm joking. <laughs> it's just kind of a pain in the ass to edit. Um, if you need some help editing, feel free to hit me up. I do audio editing, I do written editing for my day job. Like, you know, I do all the things. Cool, I will. Thank you. Yeah. But if you'd like to actually get into a little bit of a discourse the way we've been talking, you can find us on Discord. There will be a link to our Discord in the description. Uh, it's always a fun time over there. we got Special Guest Sundays where Kyle comes in and talks about uh, a topic. Uh, we had a very heated debate about, about do vegans or vegetarians eat animal crackers last week and if cereal... Wild. Yeah, cereal. Does it does does the milk go in before the cereal or after the cereal? After the cereal, you it's degenerate. after the cereal. If you put the cere- if you put the cereal in, the milk in before, uh, you are legally no longer listen to the show. I will lose that view. Feel fine about it. <laughs> <laughs> that is an offense that is punishable by death. Uh, yeah, it's always a good time. So come jump in, say hello, uh, and if hello. you're on, <laughs> if you're on YouTube. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. Make sure to like, make sure to comment, make sure to subscribe. Uh, and if you're listening anywhere else or you're not listening anywhere else, we are on all major streaming platforms, at least the big ones. Get your Spotify. Apple podcast. Apple. Thank you. Castbox. Castbox. Another one. Yeah, well, we're all another over the one. place. <laughs> we're all over the place. We're all over. Um, but folks- did we hit everything? We didn't hit everything okay. because we need to hit Patreon. If you guys really like the show and want it to get even better and better, you can choose to support us on Patreon. Our show will always be free. You'll always. never have to pay for Atomic Radio Hour. Never. But if you want to give us money to upgrade our equipment, pay our podcasting fees, you can do that at basically whatever tier you want. Just like our friend Michael Mello. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Michael Mello. You kind, kind soul. <laughs> I hope you're doing well. Tell your mother I said hello. Declan, don't talk about a man's mother like that. I was just that I said hello. But the way you said it was so... I'm sorry. Hey, what if he takes... He's going to take... What if he takes that the wrong way? Please keep giving us money. <laughs> 
everybody. See you next week. See you next week. Enjoy our content this week, guys. See you later. Bye. Bye. Hey, uh, Lou. Same thing as always. Yeah. I'll take, uh, I'll take, uh, take whatever you got. Just give me some hooch. You got it, man. Say, haven't seen you for a couple days. Where have you been? I've been on the run. Freaking, you wouldn't believe it. Rex Lincoln ended up in the Potomac. I mean, it's a great place to swim nowadays. I know, but... It's, he was killed, you know. I, I don't mean that he was swimming. I mean, he was, like, swimming with the fishes. Jesus, I mean, who ended up finishing him off? I don't know, but I'm afraid that whoever is gonna end up coming after me. Jeez. Well, if anyone asks, I'll say you weren't here. Thanks, Gary. Really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem, Lou. Just, uh... Actually, this one's on the house. Thanks, Scare. Atomic Radio Hour.